You're making the Ukrainian military, which has quite limited air defenses, choose between protecting their civilians and their civilian infrastructure, like their cities, or do they want to protect their soldiers in the battlefield? Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Tuesday, January 17th. Today, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about the latest developments in the war in Ukraine and the deepening internal tensions behind Putin's decision to swap out his top generals. And later, Eric Gardner stops by to discuss Vince McMahon's power grab at the WWE and whether there's anyone left who can reverse his control. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy filling in for Peter Hamby, and I'm joined here by Julia Yaffe. Hey, Julia. Hi. Well, I'm glad you're on the program with us today because I feel like while the news coming out of Ukraine sort of ebbs and flows, the war and its challenges are constant. And now almost a year into this conflict, most of us in the U.S. media really only get these glimpses in those instances where something truly horrific breaks through the domestic storylines here. And this is sadly one of those weeks. Do you want to sort of fill us and our listeners in on what's been happening in Dnipro. So over the weekend, there was yet another concerted Russian bombing at- attack all over Ukraine. But the most horrific damage happened in Dnipro. And in part, that was because Russia was using cruise missiles rather than kind of more regular, the kind of regular artillery they had been using. Cruise missiles go up really high and then come back down and they're, you know, they're guided. They're not the kinds of missiles that Ukraine has air defenses for, you know, and they carry quite a large explosive load. They did an incredible amount of damage, specifically in Dnipro, where they took out a whole section of a residential building. It took out two whole entryways of a residential building. We're recording this on Monday afternoon and the Death toll is now at 40 and something like 30 people are still unaccounted for. So that death toll is definitely going to rise. There are children among the dead and there are some horrific stories coming out of it. There was a 
photograph that made the rounds that was just soul-crushing. A 24-year-old woman happened to survive. She was in bed, and the force of the blast covered her with the door, I think, of her bedroom. And she happened to survive, and there was a picture of her just cowering by her bathtub, because the bathtub also kind of flew toward her. And when the camera pulls out, you realize she's not on the first floor or the second floor. She's really high up. She's stranded on something like the fifth or the sixth floor. It's kind of hard to tell. And rescuers eventually get her down. She still doesn't know where her parents are. And then we learned that just a couple months ago, she lost her boyfriend on the battlefield as well. There was also an image that went around of basically the facade of this building torn off and this very sunny yellow kitchen that was still kind of intact behind it. It was just like they they just tore off one wall. You could see this yellow kitchen and people were wondering who had lived there. And then it turned out it was a young family with three little kids. And the mother and the three kids were out for a walk when the missile hit, but their father was home and he was unfortunately killed. And you're just getting all these stories coming out of Dnipro all weekend. It was one of the deadliest strikes of the entire war. And so it has really kind of shaken people up. It's horrible. Um, Are these attacks essentially designed to induce terror, to to reduce morale in the country? Is Dnipro a city that's within Russia's short-term plans to take? Are Are they trying to soften up some sort of territory and just accidentally taking out civilians? Or or is this part of the Russian tactics to just terrify and humiliate and subjugate the people of this country? It is definitely part of the tactics to bomb the country into submission. We saw this tactic start being used when General Suravikin was put in charge in October. And I think we'll come back to that later. This was a tactic that was used to great effect in Syria, for example. You just bomb the population into submission. The other part of the tactic is that you exhaust Ukrainian air defenses. No military in the world has unlimited air defenses, right? And you're making the Ukrainian military, which has quite limited air defenses, choose between protecting their civilians and their civilian infrastructure, like electricity plants and water plants and their cities, Or do they want to protect their soldiers in the battlefield? And the calculation is that they'll run out of air defense artillery. And that would give Russia the domination of the skies that they've still have not been able to achieve almost a year into this war. This is also a kind of escalation because this was cruise missiles being used. You're seeing this kind of slow escalation, right? You see Russia start using Iranian drones and one kind of artillery and the West slowly kind of say, okay, let's get Ukraine some kind of air defenses so that they can protect themselves against Iranian drones and that kind of artillery. By that point, Russia's like, okay, let's switch to cruise missiles, which that kind of air defense, air defenses do not protect against, right? So It's the constant evolution, escalation of this war, unfortunately. Yeah, and we've seen Western powers pushing back in certain ways, too. I mean, speaking of escalation, I just noted that um, the U.S. military is training Ukrainian troops in the United States now at a uh, military base in Oklahoma. But the Russians did break through recently in the eastern Ukrainian town of 
Soldar, which troops took last week. At the same time, from what I was reading, there have also been some internal tensions and controversy over who within Russia actually is taking credit for these small victories um, as both sides are sort of pushing and pulling in this um, this sort of long-term stalemate. Yeah, that was super interesting because the Russian side is so hungry to show any kind of progress, any kind of victory in what has been pretty much a universal failure of a war effort. What they're doing is they're taking these very small towns in the Donbass that they completely obliterate in taking them. And then they crow about it as if it's a major military victory for domestic political reasons. And Solidar is definitely one of those kinds of towns. They switch their attention propagandistically and politically to Solidar because their main target most recently was Bakhmut, which they have not been able to take. But what instead was supposed to be this little Pyrrhic victory for them turned quite ugly for them because it yet again showed these divisions inside the Russian government or inside rather the Russian system. You saw the Russian military say in a statement, we're so proud of our fighters in the following areas of our military who in the taking of Solidar. And then Yevgeny Prigozhin, who owns and heads the private military group Wagner, which we wrote about on Puck in December, said, wait a minute, it was actually my guys who took Solidar, and I would like some credit for it, thank you very much. And he actually forced the defense ministry to change its official statement and give credit to Wagner in its official statement. And that was the very first time that the Russian defense ministry actually officially acknowledged Wagner's role in some kind of military operation, military victory, etc. It speaks to Prigozhin's rising power, rising status inside Putin's system, which is slightly terrifying. If you've read the piece we had up about Prigozhin, he's a extremely scary man who has an army now. And it seems like he's increasingly coming after the top job in the defense ministry. It looks like he wants the defense minister's job. What does that do for Prigozhin's standing and relationship with the Kremlin itself? Because I have to imagine it's a situation where you never want to be so important that you have real leverage over Putin, because that's the point at which it becomes in his interest not to use you, but actually to cut you down. Traditionally, Putin has played the arbiter and he has derived his power from being that kind of blackjack dealer, right? Making sure no one rises too high or falls too low and making sure he kind of controls where everybody stands. And at the same time, he has started this war that has gone sideways completely. He has waged his whole legacy on it. And at this point, I think he needs to do anything he can to win, right? And so I don't know that he has the same power that he had before to be like, hey, buddy, step off. You're getting a little too big for your britches. Because again, Prigozhin has a big army now. But at the same time, there is talk of the Kremlin trying to bring him to heel about possibly rolling Wagner into the regular Russian army, about kind of incorporating him into the system. But that 
they might be way too late to the party. Well, there has been a sort of game of musical chairs that's been going on within the circle of Putin's generals. Just the last few days and weeks, there have been a couple big shakeups in terms of who's commanding the overall war, who's overseeing the ground troops in Ukraine. What is your read on the situation there? You, you mentioned that um, Sorovkin, the general Armageddon, was actually demoted. Do you expect any change in tactics or are these primarily internal political battles that we're seeing play out? It's kind of hard to say. It definitely speaks to one thing, which is that the war is not going well and that Putin is not happy with how it's going. In the top-down system that he created, he thinks that changing the guy at the top will change the outcome, that he'll kick the guys below him, he'll kick the guys below them, he'll kick the guys below them, and it'll achieve some result. But it's it's kind of so far gone that it's hard to imagine turning around this massive ship. People I've spoken to think that maybe this is an attempt because he's being demoted to be one of the deputies of General Gerasimov, who was basically the equivalent of the American Joint Chief of Staff. So imagine putting like Chairman Mark Milley in charge of like some kind of special operation somewhere, like taking somebody out in Afghanistan. That would be really not commensurate with his rank. But some people are saying that because this was his brainchild, he was the one who planned this war to begin with and in secrecy away from everybody else in the military, that he might be able to coordinate better than Suravikin, who was not brought into the original planning and create some of the coordination that has been missing from the Russian military this whole time. But who knows? Well, Julia, I always appreciate your ability to penetrate the inside thinking of these sort of moves within the Kremlin, the um, the Game of Thrones of people within Putin's orbit, but also to truly see and, and have compassion for how this war is playing out on the ground and the lives of the people in Ukraine, which is also so important. So thank you as always for stopping by and keeping us informed. Thank you, Ben. That's very kind of you. When we come back, I ask Eric Gardner if anything can stop Vince McMahon's stunning power grab at the WWE. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Welcome back. We're here with Eric Gardner. How's your weekend, Eric? Oh, it's very good. So you've been doing some reporting into world wrestling entertainment, the WWE, and the return of its majority shareholder, the executive chairman, Vince McMahon. This is actually a, a totally wild story, even if you're not a wrestling fan. Because for anyone who's not been following this, McMahon, he retired last summer uh, when it came out that he'd paid some $15 million to keep quiet women who'd accused him of sexual misconduct. And then last month, he basically changes his mind and orchestrates the sort of holiday season massacre of the board. Um, (laughs) Walk me through how that all went down. Yeah, well, for months, there were hints that he was regretting his decision to retire He kind of like sent out word that he was going to be returning. And then formerly in December, he sent a letter to the board saying, you know, I'm back. I want to, I want to come back for this very important moment. You're doing a good job, but you can't uh, do this without me. And the board discussed this among themselves and no one thought it was a great idea. There was just too much going on. There was government investigations and it wouldn't be prudent for him to be involved. Some of the board members were just flat out didn't want him there. They rejected his presence. Then there were another faction who tried to convince him, you know, wait a few months and then maybe come back when we have a new election for directors. He did not want to wait whatsoever. He sent a flurry of moves back, amending the company's bylaws, ousting three of the directors, um, basically hamstringing the company so that they couldn't really make any major move without his say. And he was back. Basically, he was unanimously elected executive chairman of the company. And despite the fact that he's 77 years old and facing all these allegations, despite the fact that there's a government investigation and everyone thought he was gone, he returned. You reported that the board tried to scare him away with not just legal threats, but also sort of the insinuation that they had dirt on him that could come out in this process. But um, but he's the majority shareholder. So there's, as I understand, there's basically nothing the board can do short of those threats or appealing to his pocketbook. He can't be outvoted, right? That's right. I think that they thought about it. They investigated it. And, you know, while they, you know, sent threats his way, ultimately they concluded that they were going to lose this fight. He is the controlling shareholder. Now, he doesn't own a majority percentage of the equity of the company, but the company has what's called a due class structure, which means that he controls just the voting majority of the shares. So he might only control 30% of, of the stock, but he controls the, the voting and he can you know pretty much do what he wants. Now, there's you know shareholder litigation now that says he took shortcuts, though he has voting authority. He still can't reserve all rights for himself, but um, pretty much what he says goes. Yeah. And this isn't particularly unusual, right? I mean, there are a number of companies, whether it's Google, Facebook, and so on, that have this dual class structure that lets a 
founder or an executive chairman or somebody who has the majority of the voting share of the company to control it very tightly. Are there any legal remedies here for shareholders or for people on the board? Is, is this case law still evolving or is it pretty settled? I think the case law is, is definitely still evolving. Um, there have been some recent fights. There was uh, the uh, whole Sherry Redstone versus Les Moonves thing a couple of years ago. There was Steve Wynn. Yeah, there are some fights where the chairman of the board fights with either the company's executives or fights with the shareholders and they, you know, suss out like who has the power to do what. In this instance, there have been two uh, lawsuits brought in Delaware against Vince McMahon. I understand that a preliminary injunction motion is coming this week. What the injunction motion will probably try to do is to unwind what Vince McMahon did to reinstate board members, to change the bylaws back to where they were before so that the board has the ultimate right to do what it wants, to enter into negotiations. And then the votes from the shareholders come later on. This is a pretty important moment for the WWE. They are in the midst of selling themselves. That's going to be a major deal. Could be multi-billion dollars to a major media company. And at stake is, you know, basically who's going to shepherd that deal? Who's going to buy the WWE? You know, the WWE is a ratings bonanza and uh, it's a pretty important asset. So this uh, boardroom fight really matters. Yeah, I have to imagine that the boardroom fight isn't particularly appealing to potential buyers. But like you said, this is an incredible asset. It, It generates a huge amount of money. The WWE has deals right now with Fox and NBC that both expire next year. So so presumably it is a good time to find this new owner. I'd seen that um, Vince McMahon wanted around $8 billion, give or take, uh, to sell this property. Who are some of the potential buyers for the WWE? Sure. Well, first of all, they are the, you know, current broadcast partners, Fox and, and NBC Universal. For them, you know, they're already paying WWE a lot of money for pickup SmackDown and Raw. And, you know, if you think about it, they could just, you know, put all that money up front and buy the WWE outright. There's also Disney, which has a history of buying IP assets. So the, the cultural fit is a little funny. There's Liberty, which flies under the radar, but they bought um, Formula One a few years ago. There's Endeavor, which uh, owns the uh, UFC. There's you know the WWE's uh, smaller competitor, AEW. So there's certainly a, l- a lot of potential bidders out there. I'm sure that um, there might be even ones that are hardly being talked about right now. So we'll see. Well, one potential buyer that was being talked about a lot just last week, I think, was the Saudis. Are they now out of the running? What Was that sort of a, a false rumor? How did that conversation come about? I don't know if they're out of the running per se, but uh, you know, certainly there was a rumor that the Saudis basically had a deal done. And that freaked out a lot of people at the WWE. I understand that you know talents were particularly unnerved the leadership has had to like really spend a lot of time shooting down this rumor as totally unfounded. I don't think that they've actually taken any bids quite yet for many of the suitors. They're still lining up the process. They just hired a financial advisor firm. Could it happen? Could, you know, a sovereign wealth fund come in and and make an offer? I I think it's possible, but I also think that there will be other uh, players involved and uh, one shouldn't really bet on that yet. We'll see what happens. Eric, thanks for stopping by to explain it. And we'll have you back as this narrative unfolds. Absolutely. Look forward to it. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.